You're listening to Berlin Psychoanalytic Podcast. The Therapeutic Relationship, Part 1 and 2. With Dr. Alexander Dimitrievich. So we continue with videos and brief series of videos based on the requests that you've kindly sent us via Instagram or Facebook. And this time it's going to be a brief series about the relationship between the therapist and the patient. This topic is very popular, widely discussed, and at moments hugely controversial. And I will try to cover some aspects of this briefly in three or four videos. The first one is going to be about what the relationship between the patient and the therapist usually is, what it should be like, how the understanding of this changed over time, and so on. So everything begins historically with a patient. Although we as professionals like to believe that we are very smart, major revolutions in the history of psychoanalysis were initiated by patients and most often female patients. The first of these was the person we know as Anna Bo. Her real name was Beate Pappenheim, and she was the patient of Josef Breuer, the mentor, uh, supporter, friend of Sigmund Freud at the time when Freud was very young. Why begin with this patient? At this time, and this is 1880s, we didn't really know what to do with people who suffered from mental disorders, how to help them. And it was Anna O who said to Breuer that more than anything else he was trying, and that was hypnosis, diet, baths, various treatments, most of which we don't use anymore. She said what was most helpful was what she called talking cure, that he would allow her to talk about whatever she wanted to say, and that he would listen, mostly be silent, but pay attention to what she was talking. And that's the beginning of it all, a relationship in which one person will be allowed, will be provided an opportunity to speak about whatever is on his or her mind, and the other person would listen attentively. Even more than this, I'm not sure it was clear uh, that early, this can be the first opportunity for many people to finally realize what it is that they have to say, what it is that they would like to express and share with other people. Because so many things in us, especially in the unconscious, are silenced or mute or forgotten or unformulated and so on. The relationship became the most important point in the psychoanalytic theory very quickly with Freud's discovery or description of the phenomenon we call transference. In transference, and I will now simplify and put it very briefly, transference would require uh, a very long presentation. Patients express feelings or opinions or beliefs related to the person of the analyst very intensely for long periods of time, someone's 
sometimes passionately positive or negative, idealizing or denigrating, various options are possible. But in the same or similar or analogous way to what they once experienced with some other figure. And so every long-term high-frequency analysis will include at least one period when the relationship with the therapist will be the most important thing in the world. When the person is just waiting for the next session to begin, and that is more important than anything else going on in the social world, and then what will the analyst think about me, and what will I think about my analyst, and will I be proud, and will he or she be proud, and so on and so on. In the beginning, Freud believed, and many psychoanalysts followed him in this, that the most important thing was how we understand these transference manifestations and how we interpret them. And in the classical psychoanalytic approach, and this is what you would very frequently see in the movies, in caricatures, if you read many books that include descriptions of psychoanalytic treatments, psychoanalysts will be completely absent from the relationship in any unprofessional manner. They will just provide their interpretations, sometimes one procession, four procession, six procession, and not say anything else, not ask anything, and not engage in any form of communication before the beginning of the session and after the end of the session. And there are many, many examples of this that that's, I don't think I have time to, to describe now. What was the purpose of all this? Theoretically speaking, Freud believed that the analyst should be as unknown, as mysterious to the patient as possible, because this would enable the unconscious of the patient to be expressed in the relationship. And that is how we're going to understand where the problem comes from and what we should do about it. Think, for instance, of the ink plots, of any projective test that is used in psychology. The less structured the material, the more your unconscious is going to speak. The same with this. If you don't know uh, your analyst's personal preferences, religious beliefs, political attitudes, family situation, and so on, whatever you think or feel about that person will come from your unconscious and will be revealing of something that potentially, hopefully, will be helpful for the treatment. Non-theoretically, so to say, this came from the very problematic situations that took place in the years be before the beginning of the World War I, when Freud's closest collaborators, Carl Gustav Jung and Chandler Ferenczi, got involved in romantic and erotic relationships with female patients. And I'll leave it at this at this moment, and then return to that in the next video. End of part one.
We now continue with the second video on the therapeutic relationship. Things changed after the World War II when the classical psychoanalytic model was challenged by several very important authors and nowadays is not followed or not taken too seriously by a huge number of psychoanalysts, uh, especially in the United States. So it started on both sides of the ocean, in England mostly by Donald Winnicott, and in the United States mostly by Haristek Sullivan and Heinz Kohut. And again, these are extremely important authors whose work uh, I cannot do justice to in this brief presentation, but I'll focus just on, on this aspect of, of their contribution. When it comes to Winnicott, probably the most important thing about him is that he was a pediatrician and he came to psychoanalysis with this unbelievably rich experience of spending time and helping actual mother-baby diets. Some people believe that Winnicott had seen about 60,000 mother-infant diets, which is incomparably more than any psychoanalyst will ever be able to treat, whether in adult or child analysis. And Winnicott came to believe that, as he wrote, there is no such thing as baby alone, there is always baby with the mother. And he believed that the most important fact about human beings is their dependence. That especially in the beginning of the life, none of us can survive alone and we depend on other people and the relationship with other people is the basic fact of our lives, not so much the drives as Freud or Melanie Klein or many other authors would believe. And many people translated this into there is no such thing as an analyst alone or there is no such thing as a patient alone. There is only patient and analyst together. And this is very obvious in all the descriptions of Winnicott's clinical work. We don't have many, but what we have testifies to the fact that he was always willing to adapt his technique so that he would be able to help this individual patient. That, for instance, in one interview, Enid Balint talks about asking Winnicott for analysis after Michael Balint's death, when she was already an analyst and in training analysis in the past and so on. And she went to Winnicott for a year and he would allow her, so to say, to sit on the floor and cry and not say anything if she doesn't want or need to say anything. And if she would require, he would let her hold his hand. And many other examples of this can be found in recent publications, like the paper by James Anderson on how Winnicott conducted analysis published in Psychoanalytic Psychology, in the journal Psychoanalytic Psychology, and the recent book Finding Piggle, which is Winnicott's name for one of his patients, published by Phoenix, I think last year. On the other side of the ocean, Harris Tech Sullivan and Kohut, in slightly different ways, came to the conclusion that the psychoanalytic ideals of complete distance and anonymity were first impossible and then um, 
potentially harmful for the patient. Impossible in terms that whatever we do is some sort of behavior and expression. If the analyst decides to be silent, that says something about that person. If the analyst decides to say, and then when will the analyst say it, in what way, with which tone of voice, and so on. All will be revealing about this person. And there are interesting testimonies, not frequent unfortunately, not, not frequent enough, by patients who say what they have concluded, what they have learned about their analysts during the analysis. Although analysts wouldn't say their facial expressions or something else would reveal something about them. But not only that we cannot be robots, Kohut very specifically, very explicitly wrote, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't uh, try to be completely distant because many people come to psychotherapy because they suffer from not being accepted as children, from not feeling loved as children, from not feeling recognized when they try to share their pain or traumatic experiences. And if they have hope to come to a psychotherapist and hope finally I will be able to overcome this with the help of this person, and we are completely distant and without facial expression and not sharing emotion, that can even be re-traumatizing. So starting probably 1960s, more and more psychoanalysts felt their contribution to the relationship was far more important than people believed before. Not just in terms of how we react to what patients feel or tell us or put, put, put pressure on us and so on, but in terms that, of course, like everyone else on the globe, we have the unconscious and feelings and uh, insecurities and childhood memories and so on, and all of those play their part in the relationship. Now, a very important detail, or a formula, if you will, comes from Louis Aaron, who, although being one of the most important representatives of relational psychoanalysis, insisted on it that the relationship remains at least slightly asymmetrical. The analyst has ethical code, professional responsibilities, the focus on doing things that will be for the benefit of the patient. So there's a wide, very detailed discussion about the issue of disclosure. Will the analyst disclose anything during the session about the private life, experiences, what happened yesterday, what happened 30 years ago, uh, which books I like, uh, how I suffered when this happened to me? And the discussion is long. Again, again I'm, I'm presenting it here very briefly. The final conclusion has to be that the analyst can share when appropriate and will be for the benefit of the patient. Not to talk about your own pain with the patient so that the patient should help you, but to share something if you think that will be 
inspiring or revealing or confronting the patient in a good way. So, to conclude, the relationship between the patient and the analyst remains the most important thing. It only in the contemporary approaches has become more important than before, if that's even possible, or we're more aware of its importance, but it has to be dealt with very carefully and always for the benefit of the patient.